0: You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV.
1: Hi, welcome to Meaning of Life TV. I'm an editor at Meaning of Life. My name is Ari Cohen-Wade, and I'll be your host today for a conversation with Danielle Trelakian. Uh, Danielle, could you introduce yourself?
0: Uh, sure. My name is Danielle Trelakian. I'm a freelance journalist and um, a regular contributor to longreads.com, and I teach at the New school. And um, yeah, I live in New York. <laughs>
1: um, thanks for coming on today. Uh, sure. so our topic today is antidepressants, uh, depression and the cessation of antidepressants. Um, we're going to be talking about a piece that ran in early April in the New York Times called Many People Taking Antidepressants Discover They Cannot Quit, uh, written mm-hmm. by Benedict Carey and Robert, uh, Gebeloff. And you wrote a response piece. Um, that we will link to as well called what it's like to know you'll be on antidepressants for life. Um, so could you, for people who haven't read the, the times piece, could you kind of briefly summarize what this article is about?
0: Sure. So the headline of the article was, I'm pretty sure, I'm um, I'm probably, I'll protect myself by saying I'm paraphrasing because I don't know <laughs> if I memorized it, uh-huh. but it was something like people on antidepressants find they're hard to quit or find they can't stop or find they're hard to quit. Yeah. And it jumped out at me just when I saw the headline because I felt, I was surprised that they, that the premise that they were jumping off of seemed to be that one should quit antidepressants. Um, you know, that's generally most doctors advice is don't, don't quit your medication. <laughs> um, and I've started writing about mental health a little bit lately. So I am aware that people have a lot of very strong opinions on the, you know, th- believing that antidepressants should be taken only short term and um, being suspicious of uh, how Um, little research. Well, not little research, but just the way that research is done into them. And and I do think that um, more journalism about the state of mental health research is really important. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I read the article, I was really disappointed to see how it really took this stigmatizing premise of antidepressants. You're not supposed to be on antidepressants. You shouldn't be on them. Um, you should go off of them. And every, you know, every couple paragraphs, they would say, you know, to be sure, for some people, it, antidepressants are needed long term, but then just sort of like move away from that without any kind of like real consideration about that. Um, also, you know, they sort of made a big thing about, um, using a lot of data that I think they'd gotten from like Columbia Presbyterian or something. But when I was looking at their charts, the data was so, Um, you know, it was like they were looking at this data in a vacuum. Um, You know, they were like, oh, antidepressant use by women over 50 is on the rise. But recently, I mean, not super recently, but somewhat recently, scientists and doctors realized that um, antidepressants really help women with menopause. And so they've started prescribing them for that. And lots of women over 50 have much, much less difficult experiences with menopause because of antidepressants. So, you know, it's something like that. And I also take issue with the fact that like, you know, yes, antidepressants are hard to go off of. Also, all medication has side effects. And to me, the difficulty going off of antidepressants is a side effect that I consider when I go on them. And when I go on them, it's because I I really, really need them. And I don't really need to go off of them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and the idea that like, well, we don't know what the long-term impact on us is. That's true. But I do know what the short-term impact is of not taking them. And that's, I can't function.
1: Yeah. So you, so your response was both a, um, you know, response to the claims in the article abstractly, but also you used your concrete experience as someone who has been on antidepressants um, in the long-term Um yeah, and I should say for uh, the record that I am also on antidepressants and have been on for what is probably the long term at this point. Um, so, yeah, so there's a lot of threads we could pursue here. Um, I, I think the, you know, there is, so the article has some, has a point in that um, the science is not well understood when it comes to discontinuing um, these medications. And there are reports, and they interview some people who have bad side effects from going off their antidepressant and need to titrate down very slowly. They just interviewed one guy who says he would break the capsule open and take out, you know, the individual bees, beads, um, you know, like one by one to get the such a slow titration that it wouldn't affect him. Um So this, and you know, the, the there's not like a economic incentive for drug <laughs> manufacturers to study what happens when you stop using their product. Um, so I think that's, that's valid. And then, you know, there's,
0: I mean, for the record, Arya, there's also not a lot of incentive for drug manufacturers to study the impact of antidepressants long term. Um, you know, generally, like, we think of all of the, this research being done in academic settings. But if you look at the research papers, they're always funded by a pharmaceutical company because there isn't just like free money sitting in academic institutions for specific drug studies and those studies are needed, but the money will be like, okay, let's see how Abilify works for six months, you know? And so one thing that I wrote about in my essay and that a lot of people reached out to me about is the fact that antidepressants will also stop working for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, mine stopped after eight years And there's no study like no studies are being done about that are being done about why they stop working are being done about what the best course of action once they stop working is. So the idea that like the biggest problem is that. We don't know how to get off of antidepressants short term, I mean, I mean, I don't want to put like a valuation on problems or anything like this isn't the suffering Olympics, but like. There are so, I mean, and I wrote about this in my piece for the cut that you're referencing was like, we are basically in the Galileo stages of our understanding of mental health and the human brain, which is the most complex organ in our body. Um, And so it just makes sense that like, we just don't know that much yet. And it's really scary to not know. And we have this sort of like desire for science and medicine to be this like patriarchal institution and we're like they know absolutely everything and can't ever make mistakes. But the truth is like, I know that I'm essentially a test subject as an antidepressant user. Mm-hmm. And I'm comfortable with that because I want things to get better. And I'm, and I really need this, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so the other thing that I thought, you know, this is common for any, most people who take antidepressants, uh, well, they'll be told beforehand that there are, are common side effects and the side effects most common ones are, um, you know, weight gain, uh, some kind of sexual dysfunction and sometimes a, an emotional numbing effect. Um, so there's people who have an antidepressant short term and then they have some side effects and then they get off of it and, or maybe they're on it for a long term, and the side effects pop up. So we, yeah, we should know more about what is happening with these people's brains and bodies, I think. Um, Where I think the article, yeah, the article really failed in that it just it it took the, it was an underlying assumption as though like uh, an antidepressant is like you know like caffeine or something or kind of like a
0: an elective a little boost
1: you could give yourself and then like oh well no one knows what we're if you take caffeine for ten years straight no one really knows what'll happen like and the, the metaphor that you brought up in the um in your response piece was. You know, antipressant is more like insulin for someone who's who's diabetic.
0: Right. And actually, I really appreciated um, Maris Christman, um who writes about books for BuzzFeed, spoke with me about that. And I really appreciated it because I've been using that analogy for a while. You know, the like insulin. You wouldn't tell a diabetic to stop taking insulin to be more resilient or whatever. Um, but I hadn't ever really spoken with someone who does have type one diabetes about how they feel about that analogy. Like whether they're like, um, please stop appropriating my, illness, <laughs> or, mm-hmm. you know, um, and Maris, you know, has type one diabetes grew up that way. Um, and grew up kind of struggling with the fact that she would have to be on it. You know, she'd have to take insulin forever, most likely. And, um, and then also had anxiety and talked with me about how, this the realization that she needed medication for her anxiety really mirrored for her the sort of um coming to terms with the fact that she would have to be she would have to have her insulin pump or her injections for ever barring any kind of like insane scientific breakthrough that she just doesn't see on the horizon
1: mm-hmm. um so another thing that so you mentioned that you know the the, the article um brings up statistics related to age and gender and there's, you know, women over 45 are getting prescribed more, uh, but the word menopause, I don't think is in the article. Um, and no. I, che- I checked, and there's two other words that are important that are totally absent from the article. Uh, one is chronic and one is suicide. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. And that was something I talked about in my piece for the cut, which is that, you know, going on, going off of one's meds are, is like a major, contributor to suicide among the mentally ill um and the thing is like yeah these meds aren't a lot of them are not pleasant you know i mean you see people on the street all the time who like the system is telling them they need to be on medication you know objectively you might look at their situation and say you know you can't function in society the way you are right now like you need these drugs and they don't want to be on the drugs and they don't want to be on the drugs sometimes because they don't like how the drugs feel. But I can't help but think like they probably also don't want to be on the drugs because they don't like how it feels to be someone who is on drugs because of sentiments like this. You know, this idea that depression isn't a real illness, you know, that it's not, you can't really have a, like, you can't consider it a chronic illness because it's just about moods. Like, anyone who's actually experienced depression, like knows that that's not true. You know, like it really, really feels like it can kill you.
1: Yeah. And uh, and people who commit suicide often have depression. So it is, uh, it is a deadly disease. And just the fact that they totally elided the, uh, life-saving effects of these drugs. Um, and, yeah, like I, like I said, it was more, it was more like a little, they treated them like, here's a little extra boost you can have and, you know, it'll make you feel a little bit better, but not, not something you need versus, you know. I mean, they,
0: they use the phrase daily pill popping. Right. In their article, which is such a, like, weirdly, I mean, almost tabloidy phrase, you know, to use about someone taking medication, which they're prescribed. And I'm, like, you know, it's tangential, but today the Times Health section has a piece out about whether, like, people with addiction, like, whether life-saving measures should be taken to save people with addictions when, like, they're intravenous, like, I think specifically intravenous addictions, their addictions have, like, worn out their hearts so much. And just this, it's such a strange valuation to me for a health, for health journalists to take to say, like, you know, this illness is valued as less serious or less meaningful. And, and you know, should we really save the life of somebody who has a chronic illness addiction? You know, I mean, doctors recognize that addiction is a chronic illness. Like, it's not it's not a hobby. It's not just like something that someone does to, like, make your life difficult.
1: Um. So you talked about your, um, your personal, uh, mental health experience in your article. Um, so you, you were on antidepressants and then you, you decided you're taking multiple and you felt like you should reduce the number you're taking and then you had a, a severe mood change. Can you talk about that?
0: Yeah. So I was on three different drugs, and, and I was, I mean, they were working. It was great. I felt great. You know, i not, not great, but like I was really functional and my life was good. I was exercising. I was, um, working, but I was self-conscious about how many medications I was on. And so I asked my doctor if I could stop taking one of them and she just decreased it slightly. And, um, and then two months later, I was in her office and I was crying and I was like, I feel so bad and I don't know why I feel bad. And I was so scared. And she looked back over her notes and saw that um, she asked me how long I'd been feeling this bad for. And I said, I thought about a month or so. And she saw that two months prior, we had decreased my dosage of one of my meds. And at first I was so excited because, like, you know, like when you have depression, like one of your biggest fears is a problem without a clear cause and solution, you know, much like depression. So like when I was just feeling sort of bad and I didn't know why I was so scared, but then being like, Oh God. Okay. So I'll just go back on my medication and I'll be fine. You know, it was such a relief. And then I asked her if I was going to need to be on medication forever. And she asked me if that bothered me. And I said, yes. Um, and we sort of talked about it and, you know, and and she understood part of my concern was I, I felt bad that it was more expensive to keep me alive than it is to keep other people alive. Um, but then the fact that I thought I was weak for needing medication, she was like, well, do you think that about other people? And I don't. Um, so I started to really kind of interrogate that belief that I had, um, and it was really helpful to kind of realize like, no, you know what, it's not, it's actually not easy to be responsible about taking your meds and refilling your meds and going to the doctor and taking care of yourself. Like, that's a responsibility and it's something to be proud of. And I've said this to like, you know, I've gotten so many responses to that article and I've said this to so many of the people who reach out, like, you should be really proud of yourself for the work that you're doing to take care of yourself.
1: Mm-hmm. Um. Could you, how would you describe the experience of depression for someone who's never had it?
0: Um, so I think there are varying degrees, you know, like there are some times when my meds are working, um, and my life gets a little bit overwhelming and, um, everything is just too much. Um, I can't organize my thoughts. Everything feels extremely daunting, like starting a task, um, you know, and of course, the more it feels that way, the more things pile up. And it's embarrassing to tell someone what's happening. And often, you don't really even know what's happening at the beginning. Um, you know, your body feels really heavy. You don't really want to go out. Um, you're lonely, but like, you can't really interact with other people because your brain is working kind of slow, and you just are feeling so negative And You know, you don't want to be that person who, like, shows up to your friend's party being like, hey, I'm miserable. You know, like, (laughs) it's, like, not going to make you feel better. It's not going to make anyone else feel better. Although, that's not true. Sometimes, I mean, I will say, like, one of the things I tell people is often, like, talking about how you're feeling is really, really helpful. Um, But, yeah, I mean, that's, like, the kind of lower-grade stuff. And I think when it's really bad, and I wrote about this in the piece, is – um. For me, my logic changes. I'll realize that I'm thinking differently than I normally do and I can't um, access the way that I used to think. So, you know, all of my thoughts will be about how worthless I am and how meaningless everything is and how nothing I do is going to like matter or amount to anything Um, and nothing anyone does is going to matter or amount to anything and just kind of you know, this is when, like, things like suicide seem logical. And, um, and I mean, I'm lucky because I had a therapist point this out to me once, and so I can recognize it when it happens. And also because um, so far for me, like, the one thing that survives my depression every time is my ability to care about other people, even if I don't care about myself. Um, so that has saved me from the pressures of like suicidal thoughts a lot. Um, and all, but also sometimes it's a matter of like, you get so depressed that even the act of committing suicide is like an unfathomable amount of energy that like, Mm
1: -hmm. you know,
0: it requires making a decision and taking action and your body is just like, no, uh, you don't move. Um, so, and I think that's one of the things that people don't realize is like how physical it really is. Like it's not just feeling sad, it's feeling like heavy and weighed down and really unable to function. And um, and then on top of that, all of the like horrible things that are happening in your brain that you can't escape, you know, like you can't get away from your own brain.
1: Yeah, um, some of that uh, um, is familiar to me uh, from my experience with depression, especially the um, the sense of kind of self-loathing and, and worthlessness and, um, you know, thinking that I was really stupid. I remember I was telling my therapist that I thought there was something wrong with me and I was really stupid. And he said, "Well, what's what's something stupid you you've done?" And the only thing I could think of was that I had left the uh, pantry door open. But I I like really was beating myself up over like leaving the pantry door open. So so there's a like the, a, like a negative filter is the best way I can describe how, yeah. how I've experienced. And so you like you know it's, it's like a black shroud over everything you see and over yourself, and nothing um, nothing brings pleasure. Um, at most you'll get uh, like a slight cessation from the the pain and, um, yeah, you just interpret everything in in the worst possible way. There was times where I thought, um, I was, we were going to go bankrupt, uh, because of my medical bills and I was going to be fired and, um, catastrophizing is what the (laughs) the cognitive behavioral therapists call it. And Yeah. yeah. And then the physical pain, like they're like the, it's almost like you, you're experiencing the physical pain and you only really notice it once it, it ceases. Um, At least least that's how, how I experienced it Um, is once the treatment started working, then it was like suddenly like the pain, the pain in the darkness was, was pulled back.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, the, the tricky thing about the things like catastrophizing is that, sometimes you have real concerns, you know? I mean, this is one of the things I I tell people is, like, oftentimes, like, depression doesn't occur in a bubble or a vacuum. You know, it's like you, a couple bad things happen in a row and your ability to just sort of say, okay, like, these were just a couple bad things and I can, you know, whatever, take them in stride, good things will happen too, is just eroded to the point that you're like, Oh no, like this is the end. This is the absolute end. And things like medical bills, I mean, there was a time when, like when my, you know, I wrote about this in the essay, when my, um, med stopped working after eight years, um, I had really high deductible insurance. And I went to my therapist and she prescribed me a drug that basically is like a very, you know how most antidepressants like take a while to take effect. Mm-hmm. This is like a very fast acting one. And it's the only drug like it on the market. Like there's no generics, nothing that you can sub in. Um, she prescribed me six pills, like basically just to get me through till my next appointment with her. And I went to fill it at the, um, you know, the Dwayne Reed or whatever, and the pills were $1,300. Oh my God. Six of them. Wow. And I mean, I was in a horrible depression. You know, like, I just didn't know what to do. And I was really lucky. Like the, um, the pharmacist there, um, knew about this, like, app called GoodRx that scans for, um, for, um, coupons. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I like downloaded it, I found some coupons and the end it was like $300, but like, that's still $300 that like, you know, I'm, I was at least staff employed at the time. I'm freelance now. Like if I, you know, it, that's not a small amount of money.
1: Yeah, that's
0: crazy. Um, so it's really, you know, it's hard and, and because depression makes you feel so worthless, like when treatment is expensive, it's, like, really difficult to convince yourself to spend that money on yourself, you know? Like, you're like, okay, but you're literally a trash person. Like, you are absolutely, extremely human garbage. Like, what are you... Why? Like, why would you spend $300 on yourself? Why don't you just throw it in the trash and set it on fire?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I was talking to um, a relative of mine recently, and uh, she was... She had been on... Um, Zoloft for a number of years and then she switched and she was on the generic and she switched to a like a different HMO and mm-hmm. the HMO um through like she said a like a nurse practitioner called her up a, a couple times and convinced her to go off of it and then she went off of it for a while and her mood darkened and then she switched That's doctors true. and got uh, a got the prescription again um but it was just so bizarre to me I mean how much could a you know, uh, search, you know, whatever it's called, uh, prescription, uh, cost the insurer every month, like $5 or something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I almost wonder if it
1: was this, if it was a social stigma of like, you know, you'll, you know, like you're, if you're not on any pills, then you're healthy.
0: Right. Yeah. See, and that's the thing is like, there's so many health stories to be done about how insurance companies make it really difficult for us to take care of ourselves. You know, I just I don't understand. I mean, like I said, I completely support more journalism being done about the state of medical research, science research, mental health research. But to take as your premise, like you should not be on drugs. They're bad. I mean, it's 2018. Like we value science, don't we? Like why? Why not use science to improve our lives? That mm-hmm. seems like a very, like a much better use of it than, you know, whatever, you know, like Elon Musk says he's building a cyborg dinosaur. Like <laughs> great, Elon, but like, like, you know, like I can think of so many other things. Like I love dinosaurs too, but like I could think of so many other things that yeah. <laughs> would be really nice to have other than a cyborg dinosaur such as healthcare.
1: <laughs> um, so you mentioned it a little bit. Can you, can you talk more about the reaction that you've gotten to the piece? Um,
0: yeah. So I've never heard back from that many people about a piece. I've written about – the first time I wrote about my mental illness was uh, in a sort of roundabout way in a piece. Oh, cute dog. Is that a dog? Or no,
1: it's a cat. A, it's a cat. She, oh, okay. she likes hanging out when I'm doing these <laughs>
0: Nice. Um, uh, yeah, um, it was sort of in a roundabout day. It was actually it was because I had read a piece by David Dobbs, who's like an amazing science and health journalist. Um, and he wrote this great, great, great story about um, a woman scientist who like really struggled with stigma when she was in college. Um, I want to say it was for Pacific Standard. Anyway, I can email it to you. Um, But so that was the first time. And I did hear back mostly from people I knew that time um, saying, like, this was really brave. I'm so glad you wrote about this. You know, people who I didn't know also had mental health issues who were like, it really meant a lot to me. Um, But then this piece with the cut, um, well, I think I think part of it is like so many people were pretty distraught. You know, we were. I mean, I heard from a lot of people who were like, "I had a really bad few days after seeing that Times article." You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people who said like, "I called up my doctor, panicking." You know, I started wondering whether. You know, there were people who said like, "I had just come to terms with the idea of like going to get help because I've been so miserable, and now I'm not sure I should do it." Mm-hmm. You know, um, and, and that was interesting. You know, there were a lot of people I think who. The description of what it felt like for me to have depression was really helpful for. I was surprised actually by how many men I heard from um, you know it was It was published on the cut, which is uh, new york magazine's sort of um, like women focused vertical mm-hmm. but um, New York magazine also promoted it, and then they have like a syndication agreement with medium, so it got posted on medium and then it got enough likes and comments that it was featured on medium so it's just I've been trying really hard to respond to everyone who reaches out because I mean like we've talked about like I wouldn't want anyone who is de- feeling like depression induced self-loathing to like reach out to me and then not hear back and then feel terrible you know
1: mm-hmm.
0: um but it's been really net like you know it's just a lot of people saying like this really meant a lot to me thank you so much for writing it Um, telling me about their own struggles, telling me about recent, you know, how they only recently became comfortable with seeking help. Um, You know, there was one guy who I think about a lot because he said, you know, he is, he has a good job. He has a good family. He has a pretty powerful position in healthcare, but for the past while he's been crying on the way to work every day and he didn't know why. And his wife was urging him to get help, but he just thought like, no, like, you know, I'm a powerful healthcare professional guy or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, I don't need help. Um, and how he read it and he realized he did need help and it was okay to need help. And that was really wonderful. You know, like I really, I really appreciate people sharing those stories with me. I really appreciate the struggle people go through on their own with these issues. Um And then, of course, you know, I get comments from people that are like, but have you tried this diet <laughs> or like, what if you just think nicer thoughts or, you know, whatever? And I'm mm-hmm. like, I have to try really hard not to take it personally and get mad because I know that they're well intentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's frustrating because it's like, you know, I'm really happy for anyone for whom like meditation and yoga and cutting out dairy and gluten and, um, you know, thinking in a certain way. I'm really happy that that helps some people like that's great. Um, it does not, it's not what I need. And I really resent the implication that it works for everyone. I mean, I'm not sitting here saying that everyone should be on medication. You know, Mm -hmm. it feels like that should be, Um, you know, and a lot of people being like medication should be a last resort. And I guess I didn't spell out in my article that I also kind of agree with that. Um, but that's partly because like last resort makes it sound like it's like, you know, walking the plank. It's not. But I just think when I meet a doctor, I think most responsible, I kind of assess how responsible I think they are based on whether they're like, well, what else have you tried? You know, like, have you done this? Have you done that? I mean, I've been in therapy for 18 years now, like, I kind of, like, know the ropes when I go see a new doctor. I can summarize my medical history really quickly. I know what I'm on, um, and that is helpful. Um, but I definitely feel, you know, a lot of people who reached out to me and who were like, I don't know how to get help, I, like, kind of went through step by step. Like, here are my recommendations, you know, because um, it is so daunting. And especially, like, you don't look for a therapist when you're doing fine and, like, that kind of task could possibly be, more manageable. You look for a therapist when you're like positively desperate and terrified. Um, and that sucks because it is, I mean, it's a very specific type of relationship. It's a very specific type of science. Like you really do need to find the right person and it's not always easy.
1: Yeah. And you know, when you're depressed, it can be hard to take a shower and, right. um, you know, <laughs> starting a, like new medical relationship can seem, can seem very daunting. Um, did, has anyone at the times reached out to you about the article?
0: Um, someone who works there tweeted it and was like, this is really good. And I only know that because I saw in her Twitter bio that she works at the Times. So I was like, oh, okay, cool. Um, and like, you know, I have friends who work at the times who I had actually reached out to and been like, what is this article? Why? Um, and they don't work in that section, so they were like, "Oh, I don't know. That sounds. It does seem like a bad headline." <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, no, I haven't gotten anyone like being mad at me. I don't know if I'm like blacklisted from writing for the Times or whatever. They're like that dumb mental health lady.
1: <laughs> um, okay, I think those are all the questions I have. Uh, so, where can people find out more about your work if they want to do so?
0: Um, well, I have a website I haven't updated in a while. Um, daniellechalakian.com. I'm on Twitter at danielleiat. Um, and like I said, I write for Longreads.com pretty regularly. Um, the piece we mentioned was on the cut. I'm hoping, hopefully going to write for them some more too. Mm
1: -hmm. And we'll, we'll link to the pieces, uh, the Times piece and your piece and other pieces we mentioned, um, in the link section below the video. Um, so Danielle, thanks so much for coming on and sure. um, talking about a subject that is uh, sometimes difficult to discuss um, and
0: listening listen
1: to me talk about <laughs> my own mental health <laughs> stuff uh, and thanks to all of our viewers and listeners and we'll see you again next time Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week but we do have a small request If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.